0: Hi everyone, Um, and thanks for listening to our uh, atrial fibrillation uh, knowledge video. So just a very quick preface to this, this is the knowledge of what you would need to know, uh, everything you need to know about AF and more uh, for your um, specialty interviews. And for those listening on the podcast, uh, there will be some images shown, so please do take take the opportunity to log on to the website to watch the videos have a look at some of the ECGs and images shown um, we have obviously made these, uh, podcasts and videos more detailed than, than you absolutely need for the interviews, but we'll be peppering it with, uh, five out of five, five out of five tips, uh, that will get you those top, top marks in interviews. Um, so I'm Barrett Cayley and
1: this is my colleague. Hi I am Rahul
0: and, uh, let's get started.
1: Okay. Thanks, Balric. So the first thing we'll talk about just to set the scene is the definition of atrial fibrillation, which is uncoordinated and ineffective atrial contraction. Uh, It's diagnosed on either a single 12 lead ECG or on a single lead ECG trace showing atrial fibrillation for at least 30 seconds. Now, what are those ECG characteristics? There's there's two elements specifically, uh, an irregularly irregular RR interval, and also the absence of distinguishable repeating P waves. So that's the definition and diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Uh, Moving on now to the epidemiology and risk factors of atrial fibrillation. There is a global adult prevalence of around 2 to 4%. um, Risk factors for atrial fibrillation include increased age, um, sex, so male uh, uh, sex, gender is more associated. Uh, Ethnicity, it's typically more seen in Caucasians. Genetics, and they are your non-modifiable risk factors. And then modifiable risk factors uh, include certain comorbidities, including hypertension, heart failure, valvular disease, pulmonary disease, including COPD and being a smoker, obstructive sleep apnea, alcohol. And these reversible risk factors are very relevant as part of the holistic management um, is looking to optimize these conditions in people with atrial fibrillation. Moving on from the epidemiology and risk factors, the next thing we, we will talk about is the classification of atrial fibrillation. And this is based essentially on the length of time someone's in atrial fibrillation and their ability to get back into sinus rhythm. So the first subtype is uh, defined as paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And this is atrial fibrillation that terminates spontaneously or with intervention within seven days of onset. Persistent atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation that terminates spontaneously or with intervention beyond seven days of onset. And a kind of further sub-classification of persistent is long-standing persistence, which uh, is essentially atrial fibrillation lasting greater than 12 months when deciding to adapt a strategy of rhythm control, so trying to get someone back into sinus rhythm. And finally, uh, permanent atrial fibrillation, which is essentially an acceptance of atrial fibrillation as a therapeutic attitude by the physician and the patient. Now, we will later talk in more detail about the clinical presentation of atrial fibrillation, but a a couple of points to mention before that relating to prognosis. Asymptomatic individuals generally have less favorable outcomes and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation tends to have more symptoms. And thinking about prognosis, the significance of atrial fibrillation uh, for patients really is principally an increased risk of stroke. So 20 to 30% of patients with ischemic stroke have atrial fibrillation. It is also associated with a reduced quality of life and an increased risk of death around 1.5 to 3.0 times higher increased risk of death compared to those without atrial fibrillation. Now, before going on to discuss the investigations of management, one point to mention is that when thinking about atrial fibrillation, the ESC suggests describing it using the four S's. And this is quite a nice uh, framework because it helps us to essentially not miss things when when we look to manage a patient with uh, AF. Uh, And those four S's are, the first one is stroke risk. The second one is uh, symptom severity, and this can be assessed through questionnaires, such as the European Heart and Rhythm Association Symptom Score. The third S is severity of AF burden, and this is based essentially on rhythm monitoring through devices such as a halter monitor. And the last S is substrate severity, so uh, either on echo or other imaging findings uh, that um, look at how high a risk uh, a patient is for atrial fibrillation. And we'll consider these four S's as we talk uh, further about the topic. Um, uh, so before moving on, Balrick, anything to, to add to that?
0: Um, no, I think that's, a, that's really co- comprehensive. I think the important takeovers for AF when you're either diagnosing AF or managing a patient with AF is by classifying it in words with words that cardiologists and your, the consultants sitting across the interview from you uh, understand and appreciate. So. As you said paroxysmal comes and goes persistent is the word you use if someone's had it for a long period of time but less than a year and long-standing persistent if they've had it for more than a year but persistent what that really means to lots of electrophysiologists is that we are still considering a rhythm control strategy in this patient uh, and then permanent means we're only really adopting or looking to go for a rate control strategy in this patient so, those important buzzwords and really uh, w- will really guide what, what you're thinking about the patient's uh, management in this. Um, and I think the, m- one of the most important things uh, for, uh, for, for AF, and we're going to talk about it over and over again, is that this is a very, very common condition. Um, I think, with regards to the epidemiology, if you're ever asked to explain AF to a patient, a diagnosis of AF, it's incredibly common, so I think people use common, there's a common stat, isn't it, so 10 to 20% of all people over the age of 80 have AF, and I think it's about 5% of people um, between, six, uh, between 60 and 70 have AF, so it's incredibly common, so patients shouldn't be too worried when they're uh, diagnosed with AF, and then the final thing is that it's getting more and more important, um, especially with regards to NICE guidelines, is some of the metabolic syndrome that actually guides your likelihood of getting af and then also actually guides whether patients are appropriate for certain strategies so if you could say an interview that if you could say an interview this is either paroxysmal or persistent af you could say that it's uh in a 60 60 something year old uh, and this patient has um and i'd like to know more about the patient's um, bmi because that's very important when deciding about catheter ablation what more might be needed management strategies, what more might be done first, and especially in regards to BMI and obstructive sleep apnea, because they're very big risk factors for AF. And NICE have recently said that for catheter ablation in patients that are particularly overweight, they need to lose weight first before they become eligible for catheter ablation, which is a really high scoring point, and most cardiologists uh, are aware of it now. So they will uh, very much appreciate if you
1: can show off that
0: you know that knowledge. So knowing a patient's BMI, affecting the patient's management strategies is very important.
1: Nice. And, and I think that that's a really nice point that we'll go on to further discuss in the management, um, but you know, really nicely links to their risk factors and epidemiology, which is really important um, when, when thinking about AF. Uh, so next we'll talk about investigating and working up atrial fibrillation. Um, and of all things, uh, they start with a history. Now, we won't go into uh, exhaustive detail, but we'll talk about specific discriminating points in the history to to cover. And also actually a generalized approach to palpitations, which is typically how uh, AF may come up in an interview scenario. So palpitations in itself is an unpleasant awareness of one's heartbeats. And when approaching it, um, many things you can often link back using the Socrates framework. Um, And not all aspects may apply. But thinking about the character, you'd want to elicit whether it's a fast or slow uh, rate of palpitations. If it feels regular or irregular, uh, with a regular leaning more towards something like atrial fibrillation. If it's uh, heavy and forceful in nature, which may suggest a ventricular ectopic or if you're having any skipped beats, again, suggesting a ventricular ectopic. Uh, Then you think about the onset of symptoms, and if it's very rapid onset, uh, that may suggest something like an SVT, or a slower onset may suggest something more along the lines of a sinus tachycardia. Um, The frequency of a patient's symptoms is also important, uh, and this guides uh, later tests on how you try and capture the rhythm. and then thinking about exacerbating and relieving factors. So for example, if uh, they if the patient try, performs vagal manoeuvres such as bearing down and that terminates palpitations, it might be suggestive of an SVT. Uh, if it's if they find things like alcohol and caffeine are exacerbating symptoms, that may suggest it's a sinus or, or an extra systole or atrial fibrillation. Um, if the patient is finding that they're... Um, exacerbated by uh, exertion, it may suggest a a catecholamine-dependent arrhythmia or ischemic ventricular uh, tachycardia. Um, And actually, if they find that exertion reduces symptoms, that may suggest more of a benign uh, extra systole. So those are kind of the important questions when thinking, um, when uh, when, um, asking about uh, palpitations. And then you'd also ask for associated symptoms. Um, And with atrial fibrillation, people can describe breathlessness, chest discomfort, fatigue, and presyncopal symptoms. Well, they may also present with symptoms of a stroke or other embolic phenomenon. Um, In the history, it's also important to think about a patient's past medical history, um, as many diseases may predispose someone to atrial fibrillation. So, for example, uh, are they hyperthyroid? Uh, Also, the social history is important. So today, uh, alcohol, caffeine and recreational drugs are particularly relevant um, risk factors that that may increase someone's symptoms. Um, If you're seeing someone who is diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, as mentioned before, you may wish to assess their symptoms with validated uh, symptom severity scores, such as the European Heart and Rhythm Association severity score. And then an important point, as we discussed of the four S's, is think about their stroke risk. Uh, So the CHADS-VASC score is a a risk assessment for stroke. Uh, You also need to think about their bleeding risk, too. So NICE have actually recommended the ORBIT score over the has bled score, suggesting it has higher accuracy. Um, So that would be important in your history. Uh, One would also examine the patient next after the history. And this would be uh, specifically more of a focused cardiorespiratory examination, uh, looking uh, in addition for complications from the atrial fibrillation, such as decompensated heart failure, but also considering uh, multi-system causes of the atrial fibrillation, uh, such as examining for thyroid status. So I'll stop there uh, for history and examination. Anything to add, Balric, uh, before we move on to further tests?
0: no, actually not, not much to add. Um, I think the, just put it into context, I think the AF or palpitations history, you won't get that long. So you really want to draw out just the key points. Uh, and uh, I think mean, Hall's mentioned uh, many of them, just draw that again. So I think it's the uh, frequency and nature of the arrhythmia. And um, because that tells you a bit about the likely pathology by sudden onset. Sudden onset and sudden offset is a key discriminatory question between a good candidate and a very good candidate. Um, and also then thinking about um, whether it's, you know, sometimes we ask patients to tap it out. Is it regular or irregularly irregular? And that's something, especially the older school consultants really like. Um, and then in history, I would just, you know, move quickly and swiftly on any, I'd ask, you might want to say in the interview, I'd ask for symptoms of heart failure and ask about their exercise tolerance and get an idea for their general day-to-day life. And then specifically ask about um, risk factors on the on the CHADS-VASc score and on the uh, and think about their bleeding risk um, by asking about uh, previous bleeds and any other factors from the orbit score. And then also talk, think about any reversible risk factors and so specifically about reversible risk factors as so the presence of obesity uh, OSA. Uh, and then finally, you just talk about the, the triggers that Raul mentioned um, in your, both your history and your examination, so thyroid and uh, things like that. But yeah, you won't get too long in your, in your history to go through these things. Uh, so really, really whistle these absolute pearls. Um, and with AF, you cannot forget, as Raul said, stroke risk and bleeding risk. You'll be a a poor candidate for not mentioning your assessment history.
1: Yeah, so yeah, that, I agree that that's a must. And uh, trying to just mention that you're thinking about uh, modifiable risk factors, I think is a a real kind of discriminating point, yeah. showing that you're thinking slightly more in depth about uh, holistically managing the atrial fibrillation.
0: Yeah, and actually that's something I think most patients most candidates do tend to forget, and mm. people are incredibly hot in it right now. It's incredibly popular thinking about uh modifiable risk factors. at least knowing that
1: you have to think about them yeah i agree okay uh so then moving on to diagnosis so as we mentioned um it is typically diagnosed on a 12 lead ecg um however if you suspect paroxysmal atrial fibrillation i.e it's not present at the time um, of assessing the patient you use a device to try and capture uh, the atrial fibrillation. And that's really guided by the symptom frequency. So this can uh, range from uh, performing a halter monitor, which is typically a three lead monitor um, going from one day up to seven days. Uh, One can then um, escalate that to something like an implantable loop recorder, uh, which can stay in for as long as the battery lasts. they can uh, in this day and age. There are also uh, newer technologies such as wearable devices, such as an Apple Watch, typically a one-lead ECG, or uh, the Cardia Mobile um, app, which is a kind of more newer uh, addition and a newer technology. Um, and so, really, the emphasis is on when is the, uh, how often, how frequent are the patient's symptoms, and then matching the appropriate uh, device to capture the symptoms related to that. One would also perform blood tests to look for uh, potential uh, stresses or causes of the atrial fibrillation, uh, and this would include a panel of a full blood count, looking for th- uh, things like anemia, kidney function, um, uh, electrolytes, including calcium and magnesium, and also thyroid function testing. Following well, on from that, you'd want to perform a transthoracic echo, really to assess the substrate of AF, thinking about those four S's. And in particular, you'd be looking at the left atrium and, and specific uh, predictors of uh, atrial fibrillation um, burden and also stroke risk include left atrial dilatation, uh, spontaneous contrast seen on the left atrium, suggesting of uh, low, flow, uh, low flow state, Uh, reduced left atrial strain, uh, low peak velocity on a Doppler flow uh, in the left atrium. Um, Moving away from the left atrium, it would also be important to assess the left ventricle and also any other potential uh, cardiac uh, pathologies such as valvular diseases, um, which may be um, uh, contributing to causing the atrial fibrillation. Um, They are the basic uh, uh, investigations that one uh, would do. Uh, And then there are also specific investigations uh, to consider. So we talked about ambulatory ECG monitoring uh, to to diagnose paroxysmal AF, but it can also be used in other contexts. So um, in established atrial fibrillation, uh, it can be used to assess the adequacy of rate control if that is the strategy of management, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, And it it can also be used uh, to relate symptoms people experience uh, to runs of fast AF to help determine actually if they're related because people may be um, reporting symptoms that aren't related to atrial fibrillation. Uh, A further specific test uh, that may be indicated is a a transesophageal echo. And that can be done to further evaluate valves, but also uh, in the context of a rhythm control strategy, it can be used to look for a left atrial uh, uh, appendage thrombus. Um, And finally, um, when clinically indicated, it may be uh, necessary to uh, perform investigations of the coronary arteries, uh, with ischemic heart (laughs) disease a a particularly important risk factor for atrial fibrillation. Eric, any anything further to add in terms of investigations for AF? Um,
0: no, I really like your point on the frequency of their symptoms guiding the choice of your uh your arrhythmia monitoring. If someone's having we are talking about this earlier, obviously, so if someone's having symptoms once every fortnight or so, fairly low yield to do a 24-hour halter. And if your 24-hour halter is negative and the patient didn't get his symptoms in the 24 hours, it's just a bit of a waste of time to your and it doesn't tell you too much um, so you really have to think about matching your arrhythmia monitoring to the frequency of their symptoms i think that's one key thing um and with an, with that with that knowledge um i think you you could obviously talk to and i think with that knowledge and the fact that some of the newer devices so the cardia app um and the apple watch coming to the fore i think that's very useful for those patients that can use them, which more and more is most of our patients. Um, and just in case people don't know, because sometimes people don't appreciate it, I thought I'd just I've just made a slide or two on what these things are. So the first slide here, uh, can you see that screen? Okay. Yep. Um, so I thought we just we talk about investigation and 12 lead ECG. So on a 12 lead ECG, this is, I think we can appreciate Irregularly irregular RR interval. Um, and this is something you could quite happily and quite easily get in an interview. Um, and there's no, whilst you might see a bit of a baseline here, there's no definitive uh, P wave activity. So you could look at V1, which was quite a good place to look at uh, P waves. And you, know, you can't, there are some notches here, but you can't say definitively that there's a clear, clearly defined regular P-R interval. And the fact that it's irregular means that the other options would be complete heart block, which is not because it's irregular QRS complexes, or it could be MOBIS type one, which it clearly isn't because you don't have that pattern of it elongating in a drop beat. Uh, so this is by definition AF. Uh, and there aren't many things in an interview that if you get wrong, you're scuppered, but uh, without wanting to sound too drastic, you don't get the AF diagnosis of an ECG it can be very difficult to rescue that clinical station so do 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 um, practice your ECG interpretation and this they won't show you but just for interest sake so a transthoracic echo doesn't really give you good images of the left atrial appendage which is where over 95 percent of the clots form um, in AF so when we say we don't think a patient's been fully Anticoagulated, therefore we need to rule out a thrombus before we cardiovert them. This is what you do: you do a trans echo, a transesophageal echo, which gives you a really nice picture of the left atrium, which is this, and this is the left, atrium, uh, left atrial appendage, which is an outpouching, and this is where clots form. And you can see here a really nasty looking thrombus. So this is a patient that, if you cardiovert them, cardioverted them, that thrombus could quite easily um, fly off and enter the uh, cerebral circulation and cause a stroke. And this here is a similar, larger atrium, so more dilated. And you can hear here you can see uh, SEC means spontaneous echo contrast. And what that means is that it's just generally very slow flow. And if you think back to Vercos triad, slow flow is one of the things that causes clots. Um, and so this is. Pre clot formation, but it's very suspicious for uh, there being a thrombus in here. So definitely, mean you'd have to look at this thrombus in further detail on your uh, TOE to make sure there's definitely no clot before you cardiverted them. So, and as an aside, um, this appendage—if uh, we think this is where the majority of over ninety-five percent of clots can form—I think we will all going to speak on speak on late, speak later. But how we can close off this appendage as one option for stroke control uh, in AF. Now, these images are definitely not what you need to know for your uh, interview, but uh, I, think it, I think it is just uh, quite nice to know what you're, what you're talking about as a cardiologist when you say, oh, we need to do a TOE to rule out thrombus. That's what you're <laughs>
1: trying to rule out. Um, but neither no, of the answers to that. Answer. Thanks, Barry. Um, OK. So next, we'll talk about the management of atrial fibrillation. Um, so typically, um, as, uh, as if you've certainly seen our previous videos, we typically split management into conservative medical and, and surgical or interventional approaches. But with atrial fibrillation, uh, I think it's best if it's split up into management of stroke risk and also management of arrhythmia, uh, which itself can have a rate or rhythm control strategy. Um, And you can even then subdivide that into conservative medical and interventional approaches. Um, And the key overriding principles are ensuring that the treatment is patient-centered, holistic, and typically delivered using an effective multidisciplinary team. Um, So we'll talk about conservative management just generally uh, first. Um, So the first thing is patient education, um, ensuring uh, the patient is engaged in their condition uh, arguably uh, is the most important thing. Um, And as we've mentioned earlier, management of those modifiable AF risk factors, uh, and that's really key uh, to uh, reducing the um, risk of AF reoccurrence. So weight loss and treating obstructive sleep apnea is really important avoiding excess alcohol. On the topic of caffeine, so there's a bit of a misnomer here. So it's unlikely that caffeine actually causes a greater AF burden, but it can typically worsen symptoms of atrial fibrillation. Uh, With regards to exercise, so advising uh, moderate exercise in patients, especially if uh, weight loss is required. But to note actually that high intensity and endurance sports are associated with an increased risk of atrial fibrillation. So if you're managing an athlete, uh, for example, uh, that would be relevant here. Uh, Hypertension is a very uh, commonly seen risk factor. And uh, there's actually a 1.7 times risk of of, uh, developing atrial fibrillation in a hypertensive patient compared to a normal tensive patient. So it's a significant risk factor. And the ESC actually suggests that uh, AF could be considered uh, end organ damage from hypertension and, and actually advise a more uh, stricter target of 130 over 80 um, for, for patients with hypertension and AF. Um, it's also important to manage other comorbidities, so not just hypertension, but things like diabetes, cholesterol. So that's your kind of more conservative uh, management aspects of atrial fibrillation. And then when thinking about the more medical and interventional approaches, as we mentioned, uh, there's a focus on stroke prevention and um, arrhythmia management. So focusing on stroke prevention first. Uh, So this is the first kind of tenant is uh, assessing uh, stroke risk with a validated score, such as a CHADS-VASc score and the bleeding risk with a, a score such as the ORBIT score. Now, uh, if um, um, uh, for, following that, uh, the, the recommendation is anticoagulation should be uh, indicated um, uh, if uh, the CHADS-VASc score uh, is one or more, uh, uh, which is a uh, uh, non-sex based, so a score of one in a male or, or two in a female, um, and there isn't a significant bleeding risk, uh, and. The choice of antithrombotic therapy includes a novel oral anticoagulant, um, which is typically first line, or a vitamin K antagonist, such as warfarin. Um, And warfarin is indicated if um, the atrial fibrillation occurs with concurrent moderate to severe mitral stenosis, for which a NOAC is not licensed for. Or also, if the AF coexists with a metallic artificial valve replacement, uh, where warfarin, um, where again a NOAC is not licensed for, where where warfarin would be used. Uh, To note, antiplatelets are not recommended, um, and that's kind of a more historical thing. Um, Now, uh, one important point when assessing the bleeding risk uh, is a history of falls is not a great independent risk factor uh, uh, for. for sustaining an intracranial hemorrhage uh, when on warfarin or a NOAC. And there's a concern that um, often patients are inappropriately stopped uh, having a NOAC or, um, or, or warfarin uh, based on a history of falls. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for this. Um, and there's one famous modelling study that had actually shown that uh, a patient on warfarin would have to fall 295 times annually for the risk of a subdural hemorrhage to outweigh the beneficial uh, thrombosis reduction of warfarin in AF. But of course, these things always have to be uh, judged on a a case by case basis. Um, And if there is a significant bleeding risk, it's important to treat any modifiable bleeding risk factors and then follow up the patients. And really the point I'm making here is that um, there is a worry that we're under treating a lot of patients uh, who should be receiving um, anticoagulation therapy. And it's really important to to avoid that by really trying to optimize their bleeding risk. Um, So that's a point on um, anticoagulation therapy for stroke risk. Um, Now, before I move on to uh, kind of more surgical approaches for stroke risk, anything to to add there, uh, Balric, about anticoagulation therapy practically? Oh, I can't, Barak, I think you were uh,
0: To be honest, uh, I think you've covered it, covered it very well there. Uh, I think DOACs are now, as you said, DOAX are now licensed as first line, um, unless there's another indication that they need to be on warfront, is the take home. And yeah. yeah, as you said, bleeding risk, but no, I think you've uh, covered it all.
1: Fantastic. Okay. Uh, So uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a surgical option uh, is left atrial appendage occlusion devices. Um, And that's indicated in certain circumstances. So uh, if a patient, for example, is having intra-thoracic surgery or cardiac surgery in any case, uh, and they have atrial fibrillation, um, uh, then then potentially it's indicated as an add-on um, it's also indicated if there's a high bleeding risk, uh, meaning that anti-embolic therapy is advised, is advised against, but also if there's recurrent emboli despite optimization of oral anticoagulation therapy. And there are a variety of devices that, uh, that are, are used for left atrial um, appendage occlusion. Only the Watchman device has been compared to warfarin in randomised control trials. And specifically, it's been shown to be non-inferior to warfarin stroke prevention in AF with a moderate stroke risk. But studies are needed when comparing NOACS uh, to left atrial appendage occlusion devices. Um,
0: I think I'll just uh, I'll just chime in here. So hmm. left atrial appendage occlusion devices are actually a bit of my uh, pet topic, my (laughs) research at the moment. So I think for the purpose of your interview, um, you are. We definitely won't be expected to know much about left atrial appendage occlusion devices, but a five out of five candidate will try and put in somewhere that they are going to be assessing bleeding risk. And that's very important because if bleeding risk is very high, such that they can't take anticoagulation, there are other options out there, such as left atrial appendage occlusion devices. In your interview, you probably won't get too much time to go on much further than that. It's, it is important and useful to know the uh, patients uh, the Rahul was talking about and I think that's your key to know that the two the two main times that you give you uh, put in left atrial appendage occlusion devices which can be done at the same time as an AF ablation are if they have too high a bleeding risk or they're carrying on having strokes uh, or arterial clots despite good DOAC or warfarin adherence. Um, the, surgical, the surgical occlusion devices completely different kettle of fish and I wouldn't get bogged down um with them but the yeah those are the two those those are the two cohorts of patients that are appropriate for these and actually for interest sake actually in a because what what it means is once you have these occlusion devices um you needn't take lifelong anticoagulation because they've essentially occluded the left atrial appendage which is where all the clots or the vast majority of clots come from in patients with AF so uh, in in Europe and UK, in the UK, we only really do it for patients with high bleeding risk and that's the only way it's uh, commissioned, but uh, in America, for patients who simply choose not to take long-term anticoagulation, they do actually say, I'll have the AF ablation and the AF and the occlusion device at the same time and thereby obligate, uh, get rid of the need to take long-term anticoagulation, um, which hasn't made its way uh, across the pond, and, you know. So I wouldn't be talking about that in your interview as well, just for a, for your interest's sake. Um, but yeah, I think in your interview, you probably only need to get up, get on to saying that you know about these things. And that's already a five out of five points, I think.
1: Okay, excellent. Um, okay. So so we've talked about stroke prevention, uh, including medical and uh, interventional approaches. Um Next, we'll we'll talk about uh, uh, managing symptoms and specifically the arrhythmic side of atrial fibrillation. Um, And this can be subdivided into rate and rhythm control strategies. Um, And the management of this will also vary based on whether this is uh, an acute or chronic situation, which we'll discuss. Uh, So we'll first talk about rate control. Um, And the principle here is, is actually leaving a person in atrial fibrillation, but targeting an acceptable heart rate. And generally that target heart rate is less than 110 beats per minute to essentially uh, avoid a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. Um, And actually studies have been shown comparing a kind of more tighter rate of less than 80 to less than 110. And there hasn't been any significant differences um, in in outcomes, including hospitalizations and mortalities. So that more permissive less than 110 um, uh, is, is acceptable. Um, There might be times where you aim for a lower heart rate, so for example, when the patient is still symptomatic at 110 beats per minute, or they have developed a a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, or they have a device such as a CRT. Um, Now, the choice of drugs to rate control an individual include a beta blocker, a non dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, blocker, such as verapamil, diltiazam. Uh, Digoxin, um, and to note that that is less effective in patients with an increased sympathetic drive. Um, And also amiodarone, um, which generally is avoided in the longer term due to risks of side effects. Uh, So when approaching uh, a patient that uh, you decide to acutely rate control, um, just to quickly touch on the algorithm which uh, one would need to know for their interview. If they're unstable, so specifically for four factors, if there's evidence of shock, syncope, ischemia, or heart failure, one would DC cardiovert them. Um, Now, uh, otherwise, the first-line treatment is treating the underlying cause. That is always the first-line treatment, um, such as an infection, anemia, correcting reversible causes. And then one would initiate the drug treatment as mentioned, aiming for a heart rate of less than 110 beats per minute. And a couple of just practical points to mention. So if they have uh, no evidence of heart failure or no uh, significant comorbidities, a beta blocker or a central acting calcium channel blocker are typically first line. um, And are preferred over other agents such as digoxin because typically they're faster to act. And they're also better in sympathetic drive states where a patient is unwell. Um, Now, if they have heart failure with a reduced ejection fracture, uh, ejection fraction. Uh, Centrally acting calcium channel blockers are typically avoided uh, based on their uh, more potent negative inotropic effects. In decompensated heart failure, this is where uh, digoxin uh, becomes more practically useful uh, because it has a, a positive inotropic effect. Um, in severe asthma or a history of bronchospasm, this is where you may wish to avoid beta blockers. Uh, and there's sp- special scenario of pre-excitation AF, where there's essentially AF with an accessory pathway, DC cardioversion is always the first-line treatment. Um, now, second-line treatments, if the heart rate is not controlled, uh, despite your first-line treatments, you can then combine uh, the, your initial drug with the other drug. So if you start with a beta blocker, digoxin, amiodarone, and uh, the ESC also advocate you can combine a beta blocker with a centrally acting calcium channel blocker, but there is a risk of complete heart block in that situation. So that's the, uh, the rate control uh, treatment. Baric, um anything to add? Um, no, I
0: think that's, that's very comprehensive again. Um, the things I just draw out and just reiterate there are that if you're, if you've, I think there's a difference in inpatient management, of someone with a uh, AF and rapid rapid ventricular response versus general outpatient rhythm control. Um, so the thing you're going to really get asked about rhythm con- with sorry rate control. Sorry, and with rate with rate control, what you're really going to asked about is likely an inpatient. Uh, yeah. And I think that's the key thing. So in my head, it would be think about reversible causes and treat those first and foremost. If this is de novo AF, then assess the patient to see whether there's any signs of hypotension or relative uh or or cardiac failure. Um and the first would be the first would be a reason that you'd the first would be and there'd be reasons for considering cardioversion. Then the next the next thing you'll we'll talk about the rate control that you've uh you've discussed. Um and should you sure uh is worthwhile talking now about now about the 48 hours and cardioversion and anticoagulation uh yeah yeah um well, why don't you carry on that then? Um. So, so, I mean, people always get really hung up on this, and it's uh, it's really not too not too difficult. So, if you've got a patient who is you're thinking of cardioverting, um, if you're you're going to cardiovert them very acutely, I now in the next half an hour, if they're very hypotensive and it's all because of their AF, well, that's very infrequent. The other patients you, the other cohort patients that you cardiovert for AF. As an inpatient fairly acutely, are patients who are who have got heart failure, which you think is due to their AF, and they're decompensating, right? They're not going to get much better. And you need you want to ideally just get them out of their AF. Now, the point about this anticoagulation of 48 hours is that if someone has been anticoagulated sufficiently, um, if if someone has had onset of their AF within the last 48 hours, and you have to be absolutely certain about that then they haven't theoretically had enough time for thrombus to form. So you could safely cardiovert them without needing to uh, anticoagulate beforehand. But in practice, so you, just so you know, most patients, um, we would likely as not try and create a space in the CAT labs or in theatres and just pop a TOE down first to make sure they haven't got a thrombus in their appendage and then, card- and then cardiovert them because they're rarely ever that unstable you need to go straight away. But Obviously, this is an absolute emergency. You can kind of just cardio straight away but um that's the rationale behind the 48 hours uh the 48 hours point. um yeah and then i think the other points would be i'd, I'd be, I'd be although the a do advocate i've never ever seen it used to use beta blockers and wrap them all together just because the risk could be complete hard block um so i put a lot of caveats in it if you are going to mention it in your in your interview Um
1: i would just Okay, simple beta, beta blockers, soprolol orally, metoprolol, IV, uh, and then digoxin.
0: Or the other way around, if they've got hypertension, use digoxin first because it's uh, positively anatropic.
1: Fantastic. Okay. Uh, so, next we'll talk about that rhythm control um, arm of, of management. Uh, um, so Indications in chronic AF are to reduce symptoms if people are symptomatic uh, with AF, um, and if they're symptomatic, therefore to increase their quality of life. Um, Now, in terms of prognosis of of rhythm control strategies, there's actually no evidence that restoring sinus rhythm alters long-term outcomes. Um, However, if you um, stay in AF for longer uh, and there's subsequent atrial remodeling, it does make it harder to get someone back into sinus rhythm. So getting someone back into sinus rhythm can logically re- reduce their, um, the rate of atrial remodeling. Uh, but as, as I mentioned, studies haven't actually shown any uh, outcomes longer term um, uh, that, that differ. Uh, and factors where you'd favour a rhythm control strategy are uh, essentially a patient of a younger age, if they're, if they're symptomatic for uh, atrial fibrillation, if it's their first episode of atrial fibrillation and there's a shorter history, Uh, if they're developing a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy uh, um, due to uh, an inadequate rate control uh, strategy or or difficulty with rate control, Uh, if on their imaging they have a left atrium which is more normal, i.e. there's limited atrial remodeling and therefore the rhythm control strategy is more likely to work, that'd be another indication. Um, And also if AF is precipitated by an acute event, and as Balric mentioned, has occurred within 48 hours. Um, Now, the types of rhythm control are essentially electrical cardioversion, i.e. DC cardioversion, or pharmacological cardioversion. So with agents such as uh, flecainide uh, and propofenid, I can never pronounce this right, propofenone um, if there's no structural heart disease, or if there is structural heart disease, amiodarone. Um, And as we touched upon the main risk, if there's a thrombus typically in the left atrial appendage, uh, there's a risk of stroke. So uh, you can use rhythm control within uh, 48 hours of onset of AF and you have to be very confident that that's the case. Uh, Otherwise, you can do a a TOE, as as Bauric mentioned, Um, or if someone's been anticoagulated for at least three weeks, um, that would be another uh, that would be a long enough time where uh, patients should be uh, should have that clot essentially removed by the anticoagulation. Um, And following elective cardioversion, one thing to just be aware of is there is still a risk of thrombus formation because AF can come back. And so the anticoagulation strategy uh, after cardioversion is everyone should have uh, for at least four weeks anticoagulation. And um, the ESC recommend actually if, there's, um, if patients have a CHADS-FAST score of greater than one that's non-sex-based, they should have long-term anticoagulation. Uh, so that's some information about the rhythm control um, strategy. Um, Barak, anything to add?
0: Um, no, I think actually your last point about the fact that all patients after cardioversion need some form of anticoagulation for, for four weeks is a, a really nice five out of five point, And it's good to try and put into your answer if your stars will talk about cardioverting your patients. Um, <clears throat> with regards to flecainide or Amyodrome, I think if you, uh, propafenone, whilst recommended in ESC guidelines, is rarely used. So flecainide, So just know in your head if you're going to go for pharmacological cardioversion, it's Fleconide, if they've got a structurally sound heart, or amiodarone, uh, if you're not sure they've got a structurally sound heart. Um, and if you're going to start amiodarone, nice five out of five points is obviously, you know, it affects the lungs, the thyroid, uh, and liver. So you want to do baseline LFTs, uh, chest x-ray, and thyroid function tests. Um, and that again is just some five out of five points that you want to talk about when you're talking about those, those medications.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice point, actually. Um, I agree, Barry. Okay, um, so uh, finally, we'll talk about those more surgical or interventional treatments, um, and, and Barry has touched upon this already. So, uh, the first point is about AF catheter ablation of the pulmonary veins, um, and the indications for this there, there are a few. Um, so, they can they help reduce arrhythmia related symptoms. Um, so, they've shown that if a patient is fully asymptomatic. There's no actual long-term differences versus medical treatments for endpoints such as stroke or death, um, but um, uh, compared to uh, this is comparing catheter ablation v. medical management. But if they're very symptomatic, um, it, it has been shown to potentially reduce symptom burden. Uh, it is also indicated when people have concurrent heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and the Castle AF study has shown essentially that uh, a greater time in sinus rhythm is associated with improved quality of life and improvement in LV function. So that's where the evidence has come from. Um, Ablation can also be indicated when there's a concern about tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy and ineffective rate control, um, and also in instances of paroxysmal AF, where trials have shown it can reduce the burden of AF compared to an oral rhythm control strategy uh so that's uh catheter ablation um before we go on to
0: uh, yeah. uh ablation one well, i just talk about uh, af ablation um so a few a few things i think it's important to know first of all so af ablation has a success rate of about 60 to 70 percent uh and success at the moment is just just so you know it's measured in it's very binary does the af recur or not but actually there's more and more evidence than people are thinking about the trials, should they look at, um, instead of just looking at binary, does AF ever recur or not? It's actually, should it look at the burden because AF ablation uh, does, for the vast majority of patients, tend to reduce the burden of AF and the burden of symptoms, uh, as you mentioned before. Um, and the, if I'm if I'm in an interview and I was to talk starting to talk about catheter ablation for AF, um, I'd want to the things I'd be saying in my interview is that I want to be absolutely sure on the symptoms and its correlation to AF and the presence of any heart failure, and um, because that's uh, an independent reason to uh, be carrying out ablation for AF, um, as per the Castle AF study. And then the final five out of five points is to think about. Uh, whether it's appropriate for this patient is I'd like to understand a bit more about the permanence of the AF, i.e. paroxysmal persistent versus permanent, uh, and the size of their left atrium and their BMI and ability to tolerate GA. Those are kind of like the five out of five points. If you're when, in your interview, if you've got an outpatient with AF or you, you've got an inpatient with AF and you're going to talk about longer term ablation, this is the those are the five out of five points. Um, and then finally, just for everyone's information, um, and I suppose it may come up the interview, after an AF ablation, patients have to carry on taking the anticoagulation. It doesn't remove uh, the need to take lifelong anticoagulation. Um, most consultants practice this and those other guidelines. Some do say, well, if it's well, and they've, the patient can definitely say they're not having any more symptoms and they can be sure they AF never is never coming back. But by and large, the guidelines of most consultants say, if you have an AF ablation, you need to still treat yourself as though you are AF from a stroke point of view. So you have to carry an anti-calculation. And um, so that's just an important point to note.
1: Fantastic, okay. Uh, and the, the last interventional approach we'll talk about is atrial ventricular node ablation and ventricular pacing. And this is a, a, a less commonly used treatment and is more indicated as a last line uh, for example when uh, rate control fails in the acute uh, in the acute setting or whether uh, and when a rhythm control strategy can't be used or is ineffective uh Baric, have you had much experience um I think center, to
0: center to center dependent um i know here we don't um have to do it that often but other centers uh, perhaps you guys approach slightly more you might start getting yourself uh, twisted not so he's talking about this in your interview but um for a specific information. Uh, the whole point is if you ablate the AV node and you just ventricularly paste them, then you can basically control the uh the AV delay. So you can actually restore some of the atrial kick if you're if you're atrially pacing them, uh, especially in those patients that have a CRT. Um, you want this in patients with CRT devices, you want to be ventricularly pacing all the time. So 90 aiming for over 99%. And that's very difficult in patients with AF. So to improve the effectiveness of CRTs, uh, those patients are sometimes put forward for AV node ablation
1: uh, so they can just purely rely on their CRT to pace. Yeah, okay. okay. So uh, I think that that concludes our, our knowledge video for atrial fibrillation. And I suppose that the key point to make is that we've perhaps gone above what would be um, needed to know for the interview. Um, so with some kind of more uh, points for interest and to remember that when you are um, pro- uh, projecting information at the interview, remember that you you, you are aiming for the level of, uh, of an ST4 Um but uh, hopefully now this video has provided you with a bit more information if, if you're ever kind of uh, asked more specific questions about a topic that you mentioned.
0: Yeah. nice. I think just one point to sign off with um, in AF, when, when you're doing any of your practice scenarios or uh, practice questions, just you cannot forget anti-regulation, uh both at the start of the case and at the end of the case, regardless of where it's going, just make sure you've asked yourself the question. Have I considered anticoagulation and bleeding risk? Because that's what um, really is the absolute no-no that you can't miss.
1: So that's, that's Balrick's take care message. Mine is, don't forget the modifiable risk factors because that, that yes, that's, so that's a really yeah. nice point too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a,
0: that, that really gets to the five out of five points. Really um, All right, well, thanks for listening, guys. Um, oh, actually, can I just very quickly share? Uh, I'm just going to share screen. I promised I would. This is the... didn't show this last one at all. this is the cardio uh, app so just so you know what you're recommending to patients uh i just think you've got an idea for it it's basically this small little uh device that's smaller than a credit card that actually a lot of people carry in their wallets or you can stick onto the back of your iphone and then essentially what you can tell patients is whenever you get any symptoms pop your fingers uh on the on the cardio uh, hardware and then you have an app which gets a really good level of yeah really good level of uh, ecgs and those are things that Cardia themselves analyze and you can also download for analysis with your local friendly cardiologist uh yeah they're more and more frequent uh and i'm sure they will become more and more frequent as years go on now nice.
1: great
0: all right well thanks very much, guys and uh yeah please tune in for the uh the upcoming scenarios as well Bye. But-